our world. Nobody truly knows where it came from or how it got here. Of course, we all have our own opinion of what or how it happened. Everything from a bunch of chemicals that happened upon each other and blasted us into a planet perfect for us all to live on to it being the work of perfection of our creator. Nobody knows exactly when this happened or how old the world actually is. Some say millions of years, while others argue that it's only a few thousand. The inhabitants of this old world, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed some pretty unbelievable historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from serial killers to weird creatures that show up and destroy their lives. The worst creature of them all, though, just might be man himself. I, being born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond the pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. This old world outside of these mountains has seen its share of it as well. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey around the world for we seek out things that are not always as they seem, and history is not always as what we've been told. I guarantee it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Welcome back, and I appreciate you so much for joining me today. I remember watching those old war movies back when I was a little feller. I would watch as the enemy would attack the village full of civilians, and they would all be hiding in their houses in fear of the Nazi army when they would just open fire on the whole town. Now, the worst part of it all to me wouldn't be all the shooting. It'd be after it all got quiet and nobody knew where the danger was coming from next. Come on in, have a sit down, and let me tell you about a span of 10 weeks during 1946 when an unidentified killer would haunt the twin cities of Texarkana, Texas and Texarkana, Arkansas when nobody there knew when what was coming next or where it was coming from. The true series of incidents were responsible for the movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which was based on these true events. On February 22, 1946, 24-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, headed up to a secluded spot on Richmond Road at about 11.45 in Texarkana, Texas. The young couple had spent the evening at the movies on a double date with Jimmy's brother, but after dropping them off, it was time to go somewhere and maybe steal a little sugar couple barely had time to start relaxing when their sugar t- turned plum rotten and the night was brought to a complete halt. A dark figure peered through the window at him with a white hood over his face with rough holes cut in it for his eyes and mouth and a pistol in his hand. The man dressed like the scarecrow from Batman barked his first order at him. Come out of the car now. Worried that they would be shot dead if they failed to follow it, Jimmy and Mary did as they were ordered. Mary told the man that he could take all the money he wanted just to please don't hurt him. The man shined a light in her eyes and he gave his reply. Do as I say and I won't hurt you. 
The first request was a weird one. He ordered Jimmy to take his britches off. After some understandable hesitation and Mary's pleas just to do what he was told, Jimmy took his pants off. Seeing what they were up to, I'm about to half surprised that he didn't already have them off. But anyway, despite satisfying the demand, the attacker went back on his promise and whacked Jimmy across the teeth with the gun and left him in a crumpled heap on the ground. Now, seeing the danger her life was in, Mary made a run for it. Of course, she never works, and she didn't get very far. After being thrown to the ground, Mary cried in horror as the warped individually, individual sexually assaulted her and with the barrel of his gun, of all things. Thankfully for Mary, her ordeal came to an end before an even worse fate became her as the headlights of a car came into view and the masked marvel busted Mary across the face a few times and he went running off into the dark. After Mary called the police, the young couple was rushed to the hospital. Mary had sustained several bumps and bruises, but Jimmy was far worse. He had rap on the head had given him a skull fracture. And, but Jimmy, being a tough kid, overcame his injuries and survived the horrible ordeal. Little did Jimmy and Mary Jean know that the time luck they was at the time that they were able to escape with their lives that night. But they would soon find out. The couple offered up their accounts of events to the police. For the most part, both Jimmy and Mary's stories were the same. However, there was one detail that was very different and an important one at that. And Mary and Dan hunt for the piece of dog squeeze that done that to them. But both had said the man was around six foot tall with Jimmy saying that he was a white man. Mary, though, was adamant that the attacker was black. Authorities tended to believe Jimmy's description, with some even pondering the idea that Mary had actually known the man and maybe he'd whacked her across the head just to make it cover up so she'd have some plausible deniability in the whole thing. The police inquiry took an, uh, into the attack on Jimmy and Mary Jean, but hey, they didn't uncover really any suspects with most of the opinion whoever committed the attacks was probably now long gone anyway. The newspaper had covered the case, also showed little concern. They all thought that this was a one-off horrific accident and, and probably never be solved, but the locals weren't. Well, I guess they went locally or mostly unconcerned and thought that the attacker was somebody passing through as opposed to being one of their own. Tragically, it didn't take them long to realize how wrong they were. On March 24, 1946, Scarcely a month later, a motorist was driving along Bowie County Highway 67 when he spotted a vehicle parked in an unusual spot along the side of the road. The area had suffered a horrible toad strangler over rain, and so thinking that the driver of the 1941 Oldsmobile may be stuck in the mud and in need of assistance, he pulled over to offer his help. As he walked up to the car, the Good Samaritan saw the vehicle contained the bodies of a male and a female covered in blood. Of course, you know this was coming uh, between me and you, didn't you? The identities of the occupants were soon ferreted out. The man was... 29-year-old veteran Richard Griffin, who was found scrunched up under the dashboard. 
The woman found in the back seat was Polly Ann Moore. She was 17 years old. Both had been shot with a 32 caliber revolver. Although not reported by the police at the time, it was later revealed that Polly Ann had been sexually assaulted. The FBI files on the case couldn't absolutely confirm this because her body had already been cleaned and embalmed before they got to complete their investigation. The bodies of the victims were found in the car, but there was clear evidence that they were placed there by the killer. Bloodstains and drag marks were located nearby. Due to the torrential downpour of rain in the area, little other clues survived the water, including any fingerprints. The investigation determined that Polly and Richard had started dating six weeks prior to the murders. Despite the age difference, they found nothing to suggest anybody was concerned about it. Furthermore, they found that nobody had a desire to cause them any harm and neither having any enemies that they could find. The last person to have seen the pair alive was Richard Griffin's sister, Eleanor. She had supper with them on March 23rd and last saw them when that evening in West 7th Street Cafe at about 10 o'clock in the evening. Despite questioning over 50 people in relation to the case, they were no closer to finding the couple's killer. Even the offer of a $500 reward, which is a little over $6,700 in today's money, proved fruitless. In fact, if anything, this proved detrimental as it led to hundreds of wackadoodles calling in false leads, which police were obligated to follow then. Officially, no connection was made between the murders of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore to the assaults of Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary. That, however, didn't stop the residents of Texarkana from making the connection themselves. Despite debate amongst locals that the two attacks may be related for the most part, it life just went on as usual. But, of course, that didn't last long either. By April 14, 1946, which was Palm Sunday that year, G.H. Weaver and his family were driving along North Park Road when they spotted a man laying on the shoulder of the road man's clothing was covered in blood. The Weaver family called the police. The victim was soon identified as 17-year-old Paul Martin, a former Texarkana resident. Paul now lived in Kilgore, Texas, and was only visiting for the weekend with his parents. He had been shot four times, once in the neck, once in the shoulder, once in the hand, and a fatal shot was right in his face. The early investigation soon discovered that Paul Martin hadn't been alone. The previous night, the day before, he had arranged to collect 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker from a dance where he was, she was playing the saxophone for a local band called the Rhythm Aries. Witnesses saw the two leave the party together at around 2 a.m., but Betty Jo Booker hadn't made it home either. So a frantic search for Betty Jo Booker began. At 12 p.m., six hours after Paul Martin's body was found, well, the worst fear of everybody were realized when the body of Betty Jo was found behind a tree in the woods near Fernwood. She was fully clothed, laying on her back with her right hand in the pocket of her coat. Looks like she made a run for it, too. Found almost two miles away from where Paul was discovered, Betty Jo had died from two gunshot wounds after a struggle. There was also evidence that Paul, too, had put up a fight. One of the shots was to the face. The second went through her heart. There was also evidence Betty Jo Booker had been, you guessed it, 
sexually assaulted as well. Again, this information was kept from the press. I tell you folks, these Texans are tough people who don't scare easy. <clears throat> pull a gun on them and you're going to do something. They're going to do something. Probably pull their own and shoot you. Paul Martin's car, a 1946 Ford Club Coupe, was finally ran down. It had been abandoned with the keys still inside at the entrance of Spring Lake Park. This was about a mile and a half from the spot where Paul's body was found. Latent prints were taken from the scene, including one of the on the steering wheel. It was discovered the print didn't belong to either of the victims or anybody who had been known to have use of the vehicle. The bullet casings found at the scene were the same 32 calibers found at the Griffin Moore crime scene, but that information was also kept close to the vest by the police. Police linked the two double murders quickly, which was confirmed conclusively when ballistics revealed the casings found at both scenes were fired by the same gun. They also realized the attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary back in February was highly likely to be the work of the same person. Police had no idea how Paul Martin's car ended up where it was found. Betty Joe and Paul weren't believed to be romantically involved, so they didn't believe it was for a romantic liaison. They could find no reason the teens or the two would have been at Spring Park Lake had they been lured or forced there. Yeah, well, had the killer himself maybe even driven them there. Well, they just didn't know at this time. Folks, this ain't over. You're listening to the world of murder, mystery, and legend. I'll be right back. Now, at this point, the decision was made to put the highly respected Texas Ranger, Long Wolf Manuel Gonzalez, on the case. Long Wolf issued the following bulletin as one of his first acts. Wanted for murder. Person or persons unknown for the murder of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin. On or about April 13, 1946, in Bowie County, Texas. Subject or subjects may have their <clears throat> in their possession or may try to dispose of a gold-plated Bundy E-flat alto saxophone, serial number 52535, which was missing from the car in which the victims are last seen. This saxophone had just been rebuilt, replated, repadded, and was an almost new black leather case with blue plush lining. It is requested that the check be made of the music stores and pawn shops. Any information as to the location of the saxophone or description of whereabouts of the person connected with it should be forwarded immediately to the Sheriff Bowie County, Texarkana, Texas, and Texas Public Safety in Austin, Texas. The saxophone was finally discovered in the bushes some six months later, not far from where Betty Jo Booker's body was found, still inside the black case. The saxophone failed to lead to any help in identifying her killer, though. Police may have had no name for the man who was now sending a wave of terror throughout Texas, but the press soon did. During the reporting on the most recent attack, the murder of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, the killer was labeled as the Texarkana Phantom by the press. It was a name that stuck, and in some ways only helped to build raising the hysteria within the community. With the Texarkana Phantom Manor, uh, murders now very much public knowledge, doors that were once left unlocked were now bolted shut. A happy greeting to a stranger was now replaced with a suspicious look and a 
nightfall, the sounds of children still playing was replaced with complete dead silence. Law enforcement stalked the lovers' lanes and secluded spots where young teens and couples may go to alone in the hopes of catching the phantom. In total, over 300 possible suspects were questioned. One by one, they were let go without charge. Despite the best attempts of the community to stay safe, another attack was just weeks away. Less than a month after the murder of Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker, fear within the area could be cut with a knife. On the evening of May 3, 1946, 36-year-old Virgil Sarks, Starks I'm sorry, sat down in his chair to listen to his favorite show on radio at about 9 p.m. His 35-year-old wife, Katie, was upstairs. She laid on the bed in her nightgown reading a magazine. The farmhouse the couple called home was located in Miller County, Arkansas, in a remote area some 12 miles from Texarkana. Katie and Virgil Starks had been unaffected by the horrors and hysteria, or hysteria, filling the nearby city with dread. Sadly, uh, that would all change here in just very short order. As he sat listening to his radio show, little did Virgil know that a figure had appeared and stood outside the window looking at him. Two shots burst through the window pane, shattering the glass and entering the back of Virgil's head. Katie came downstairs to check out the sound of the breaking glass she had heard, thinking that her husband had accidentally smashed something. Instead, she was confronted with the ghastly sight of her husband on, with half his head gone, slouched on the chair and covered in blood. Katie ran to the phone to immediately call the police as she picked up the receiver and began to dial. Two more shots came through the window and the, the same window, matter of fact, that her husband was shot through. One bullet ripped through Katie's right cheek, exiting behind her left ear. The second bullet entered through her jaw, blasting out several teeth before the shot lodged itself under her tongue. Somehow, Katie was still alive, though. Fighting through the exceeding agony of her ordeal, Katie crawled toward the door in hopes of escaping the same fate her husband had. She did so. She suddenly heard an assailant attempting to make his way through the very same door that she was trying to get out of. With every ounce of strength left in her, Katie dragged herself through the house and out the front door across the street to her sister's house, leaving a trail of blood behind her. To her horror, her sister wasn't home, but thankfully a nearby neighbor was. The police were called, and Katie was immediately rushed to the hospital. Amazingly, she survived the attack after spending several days in critical condition. On arrival at the farmhouse, the police found the phantom long gone. The killer had managed to make his way into the home through the kitchen, muddy footprints showing that he had searched upstairs in the living room before walking right out the front door and across the road hunting for the woman he'd just shot. A flashlight belonging to the killer was also found near the window from which he'd dropped the hammer on Virgil. More importantly, he had also left several fingerprints and bloody palm prints all through the house. Bloodhounds were brought in the following morning and picked up the scent of the phantom. The scent was traced for 200 yards, running along the highway until it was lost. 
That's probably because that's where the Phantom had parked his car during the attack, and he just got in it and drove off. Unfortunately, Katie Starks was unable to help once she was available to answer questions. She had never set eyes on the Phantom during the horrible attack, so she could, couldn't even provide a description. The only description they had remained those of Mary Jane Leary and Timmy, Jimmy Hollis, who couldn't even agree on the race of the attacker. And with no other wit- eyewitness, they were just plain police were just plain at a loss. Shortly after Virgil Stark's murder, police in Paris, Texas, arrested a 46-year-old named Charles Coleman for suspected rape. They quickly discovered that he had been in Texarkana at the time of the first two double murders and was investigated as a suspect. His alibi was soon confirmed and he was eliminated as a suspect in the killings. Coleman was able to prove that he was in Colorado at the time of the Starks attack. Police soon had another question. Was the Starks attack even the work of the Texarkana Phantom? Now, the attacker once again had eluded police. The question was whether the murder of Virgil Starks and attempted murder of Katie Starks was the work of the Texarkana Phantom or did maybe an isolated attack. Opinion was split amongst law enforcement. Some officers argued that the ammo used in the latest attack was a form of 22 semi-automatic rifle as opposed to the 32 caliber revolver used in the previous Texarkana Phantom murders. The victims were also much older than the Phantom's previous victims and attacked in their home as opposed to maybe in a lover's lane somewhere. To me, that may be because the police were crawling all over the lover's lane at the time. Others believe it was just plain stupid to dismiss the latest attacks as not being linked to the previous ones. The attacks had grown in violence, and in their eyes, this attack was the next natural progression. It could also be argued that the hysteria and higher level of scrutiny and surveillance the Texarkana made it much easier to strike somewhere else rather than the lover's lane. They believe this was the reason behind a slight change in the MO and location. It seems that the argument was never fully settled. Even to this day, according to all known records available, the prints found at Stark's home were never positively a match to those at the Martin Booker scene. However, other than a file stating palm prints cannot be compared to fingerprints, no mention is made in the FBI files about the results of the fingerprint comparisons. One thing we do know is that the Starks murders are continuously mentioned throughout the FBI files on the Texarkana Phantom murders. This, to me, points to the fact that they had nothing on their files which could rule out the connection. The police finally pounced on and arrested a man named Yule Swinney and dragged him downtown. And here's the story on that one. In the weeks following the murder of Virgil Starks, several suspects were taken in for questioning in relation to the murders. All were eventually released without charge. The hunt for the Texarkana Phantom was going nowhere and going nowhere fast. A police officer named Max Tackett soon gave the investigation some new hope. He realized that before each murder, a vehicle had been reported stolen before and been found not long after the murders had taken place. On June 28th, Officer Tackett located a vehicle stolen just before the murder of Virgil Starks in a Texarkana parking lot. Officers Tackett, along with his partner, Tailman Johnson, decided to wait and see who came to the vehicle to pick it up. 
when 21-year-old Peggy Swinney returned to the vehicle from a nearby store, she was arrested. Peggy Swinney informed officers that the car belonged to her husband, Ewell Swinney, but she was driving it as he was out of town. Officer Tackett soon found the reason Ewell Swinney was out of town. It was because he was attempting to sell the stolen car. On his return to Texarkana, Officer Taggett arrested Ewell Swinney after a brief chase at the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station. When arrested, Mr. Swinney said, That's something a little strange. I know what you want me for. You want me for a little more than stealing a car. Mr. Swinney had a history of getting into trouble. His police record included multiple charges for car theft, burglary, assault, and counterfeiting. On searching the hotel room where Mr. Swinney and his wife Peggy had been staying, a shirt was found, which was of particular interest. Found in the closet, the pocket had the name Stark stencil on it. In terms of possible evidence, this was nothing compared to the bombshell his wife would drop. During questioning, Peggy made the shocking confession that her husband was the Texarkana Phantom. Peggy even confessed that she had been with her husband at least one occasion, although she took no part in the attacks. She recanted the claim several times in the week following, but each time she would then change her mind and once again blame her husband for the phantom murders, each time with a slightly different tale to tell. Investigators wanted to believe they were being told the truth by Peggy Swinney. Parts of her story, certainly at face value, seemed to include details that hadn't fully been divulged to the press. However, they had several problems. The fact that her stories were so inconsistent was first major stumbling block. Her claims would already be taken with a good bit of salt by many due to her being a criminal, but the altering stories that she told would only exaggerate the problem. Peggy Swinney also refused to testify against her husband in court, and under law, well, she couldn't be forced to do so. On paper, some of the details she gave did give her statement more validity. The problem was that during her incarceration, Peggy Swinney spoke to over a dozen different officers. Investigators couldn't be certain the details Peggy gave were genuine or information that she had garnered from the conversations with the different law enforcement officers. Another problem came in the form of a letter Peggy wrote just before her first confession intended for her parents but intercepted by police. In the letter, she states that she lied in accusing Yule and only did so after repeated questioning. Mr. Swinney was never charged in relation to any of the murders. Max Tackett and Tillman Johnson believed that they had caught the killer, and by all accounts, they continued to believe that until their deaths. Most of the Texas Rangers working the case and Sheriff Bill Presley were unconvinced. Lone Wolf Gonzalez, who headed the case, continued his hunt for the killer for years after. Mr. Swinney was incarcerated, indicating that he too was unconvinced Yule Swinney was the Texarkana Phantom. The most conclusive proof for Yule Swinney not being the Texarkana Phantom are the fingerprints. His prints are checked against those taken at the Stark's crime scene and various latent prints found at Spring Lake Park and none were a match for Yule Swinney or anybody else they tested. So what finally happened to old Yule Swinney? Well, he never was charged with anything in relation to the Texarkana Phantom murders but was given a life sentence. 
He was sentenced as a habitual offender and sent to serve out his sentence in Huntsville, where Texas puts their murderers to sleep. His conviction was overturned nearly 30 years later in 1973 after an appeal. However, even after 30 years behind bars, Yule Swinney hadn't learned squat and went right back to the same thing that got him locked up to start with, which resulted in him spending his remaining days in and out of jail until he died in 1994. As is often the way with these old cases, it's sad to say that the truth is, yeah, I guess that we'll probably never know who took the lives of these poor victims. The Texarkana Phantom will, unfortunately, remain anonymous, probably from now on. What do you say, folks? Let me know. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. Of course, you'll be following Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend to get this World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, which runs right along with with it uh, under the same name, uh, along with the Deviant Report, of course. I hope <clears throat> if you'd like even more episodes of all the podcasts we do, become a consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three. Just go to anchor.fm or Spotify and search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and they'll fix you right up. Please join us on Facebook group or Twitter at Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another episode of World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and I'll see you then.